The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. All right. Have you guys ever ridden a roller coaster before? Like a giant roller coaster? When I was a kid, I uh, was pretty scared of roller coaster just because I'd never really been on one. I think the biggest ride I'd been, ride I'd been on was probably like the zipper or something at the fair, at the carnival. And so uh, I remember I uh, went down south to visit some family um, pretty close to Magic Mountain, Six Flags, Six Flags Magic Mountain down there. And they have one of the biggest roller coasters, at least at the time, it was one of the biggest roller coasters called the Giant. This huge drop, just crazy. And I was just kind of a little kid, I think it was like 11 or 12, and um, my uncle decided that we were all going to go to Magic Mountain that day. So as soon as I heard that fear, it instantly struck my body. I was like, oh man, I am not ready for this. I'm going to be that one that falls out of the roller coaster and is on the news. And they talk about how this kid died in the theme park. That's going to be me. So the entire drive, it was like two hours through traffic. The entire drive, I was just like consuming my mind. Like, oh man, here we go. This is going to be horrible. And then we get to the theme park and I'm like, well, I'm trying to just talk to myself out of being scared, but it's not working. And my uncle says, let's, let's go ride the big one first the biggest ride in the park. Let's go ride it first. And I was like thinking in my head, we're going to like warm up slowly. Like, you know, we'll start with, uh, it's a small world. That's Disneyland, you know, but, but work, work our way up. And he's like, no, let's, let's go just hit the big one right away. And I was like, okay. And we're standing in line for, you know, two hours or something like that. And, you know, you take one step every five minutes. You're like, okay, a little closer, a little closer, you know? And, and uh, the whole time I'm trying to think how I can get out of this. Like, how can I get out of riding this ride? Like, dude, sorry, Uncle Greg, my stomach hurts. I got to go to the bathroom, you know, whatever. No, I can't think of anything that will make me not look like a total wimp. Um, so I just end up staying in line and we go. And finally, after like two hours, we get to the front of the line. And I'm like, oh, no, this is it. It's now or never. And I didn't say anything. And I got into the ride. And I put the lap belt thing as tight as I could possibly get it so I wouldn't fall out. And then we start to move, and I realized that something hit me, and I've either had moments like this in your life where you realize there is no going back. <laughs> click, 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 click. You're going up forever, you know what I mean? Like forever you're going up the roller coaster, and you realize there's nothing I can do right now that will get me out of this. There's absolutely nothing. Like it doesn't matter if I screamed and cried and said, I went out, let me out. They're not going to stop this ride for me. I have to go up, and it's, it was just... That moment is kind of, it's kind of weird. And all you can really do in that moment is say, okay, here we go. (laughs) All I can do is trust that I'm just going to make it through and we'll see what happens. And of course, obviously it was really fun and I became an addict and I love roller coasters now. Uh, It was awesome. But you know that feeling where you're like, what did I get myself into, right? Well, um, that compares very little to the intensity of what Jesus is going through here, but I say that to say that um, Jesus is at a point where he is in full realization and full understanding of what is about to take place, and there's no going back. Jesus is hours away from his crucifixion, hours away from not only the worst of man's uh, thinking on even how to murder a person, but from God's full and mighty wrath. From eternal, uh, for the first time in eternity, he'll be separated from God the Father. And it was so terrifying. We looked at it last week. It was so terrifying to him. And, and the weight of what was about to take place, that he literally sweat drops of blood in the garden. It was so terrifying to him. And he prays to the Father, Lord, if there's any other way that I don't have to go through this, tell me. And, and he says, but not my will, but yours. He submits to the Father's will. And in his weakness, he found God's strength, like, like, like we learned last week. And 
a matter of hours later, not even hours, a matter of minutes after um, that time in the garden is where we pick up the story, and there's no turning back. Things, this is the beginning of the crucifixion right here. From now on, we will be talking every Wednesday for the next however many, four or five, it takes to get through. Jesus will be taking sips of the cup of wrath in every single verse. Jesus is being betrayed. Jesus is being beaten. Jesus is being mocked. Jesus is being scorned, and it starts with tonight. You say, that sounds super depressing. Well, it's not. Trust me. So, verse 43, chapter 14. What I'm going to do, a little bit of a roadmap, just so you know what I'm doing and where we're going. We're going to look through the verses first, just in a background sense. We're going to look at um, just creating the story here and talking about what's actually happening. And then when we get through the, the text, then I want to go back and actually talk about what the Lord might have for us um, tonight. Okay, sound good? Here we go, verse 43. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. So, as I said, they're in the Garden of Gethsemane, okay? This is a, 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 where the Mount of Olives. This is a, an area just outside of the Wall of Jerusalem um, that would have been literally just tons of olive trees. So it would have been sort of a dense, a quiet place to get out of the hustle and the bustle of the Passover feast that's going on in the city. Jesus takes his disciples out of the city to the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, will you pray for me? And he goes in, and and then while he's praying uh, to the Father, you can read that prayer that he asks to the Father in John chapter 17. Uh, They fall asleep, right? And Jesus comes and says, what are you guys doing? Like, you can't stay awake for me for like a couple hours when I'm going through the worst agony of my life, right? Um, So they wake up, they fall asleep again. It goes on, it goes on. And finally, Jesus says, you know what? Just wake up. Um, My betrayer is at hand. They're coming to get me. And as Jesus is saying those words, literally, because it says immediately while he was still speaking, here comes these torches, right? It's about midnight, okay? It's about midnight. It's late. It's pitch black. They're in the garden, and all of a sudden, torches are coming towards them, and lots of them, okay? So you can imagine Jesus' beat. Heartbeat is starting to pump faster. The disciples' heartbeats are starting to pump faster. What's happening? What's going on? Why is this mob? Why is this huge amount of torches coming towards us in the middle of the night in the garden? Who even knows that we're here? And then they see a familiar face. Judas. What's Judas doing here? (laughs) And why does he have this massive mob of armed people, of armed soldiers, and armed temple guards? So they see Judas. Now, this crowd, specifically, let's talk about this crowd that comes. It says they would have been armed, armed with swords and armed with clubs. Okay, this is somewhere between, and I'll explain why, this is somewhere between probably a thousand People, okay. Now, in the movies, you usually see like a small group of guards that come out, um, and that that could be debatable. But I honestly think this is probably a huge group of people, somewhere between six hundred and a thousand men. The reason being is because in John's account, it says that uh, that Judas actually led a cohort. Well, a cohort was a Roman group, and it was one tenth of a legion. A legion was six thousand men. So, if you can do math, one tenth of that, we got six hundred soldiers that Judas went through the high priest into Pilate and recruited to go in and arrest Jesus. In addition to that, we also have a group of men that were the temple guards. Okay, so the Romans are the ones with swords. It says they have swords and clubs, and the temple guards were the ones with the clubs. They didn't need swords. They were more like police crowd control, right? They would stop the the, the uprisings and the mobs and the things like that in the temple. They didn't need to, to stab anybody. They just needed to beat them back. So that's why we have guys with swords. We have guys with clubs, it's a huge group of people. They're ridiculously armed to the teeth. Okay, this is Jesus and 12 guys that probably couldn't fight for their life. 
as we'll see. Okay, This is a ridiculous amount of men, armed men, way more than they need. Now, who sent these who sent this mana? Now, now Judas obviously uh, wanted to betray on that night. He went out of his way to set this up. But ultimately, if you notice in our text in verse 45, it says, I'm sorry, not 45, verse uh, 43, it says that the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders were the one, ones that sent this group. Now, who is the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders? We've gone over this before. It was a council that made up something called the Sanhedrin. Okay. We talked about that a few weeks back when Jesus uh, came into contact with the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was 70 men. That was the, the highest of the high in the religious system of Judaism. Okay. 70 plus 1 was the, the high priest. Okay. And they're made up of the chiefs, the scribes. They're the ones that want Jesus shut up. They're the ones that want him murdered, want him dead. And they're the ones that have employed their power in order to get this mass of men to send him into the garden with Judas' help, the betrayer, to arrest Jesus and ultimately to have him murdered. Acquiring Roman guards would have been easy because Pilate, Pontius Pilate, if you guys know, Pontius Pilate was the Roman governor in charge of Jerusalem. He didn't live in Jerusalem. He lived outside of Jerusalem in a place called Caesarea on the Mediterranean coast. Beautiful place. Um, we actually got to go there when we were in Israel. Um, totally Greek, totally a Roman-feeling city, right? He lived there, and he had to come into Jerusalem. I doubt that he wanted to. He had to come into Jerusalem to try to control the mob of Passover, because we're talking millions of Jews entering into Jerusalem for Passover. So Pilate is willing to stop any chance or any hearsay of any kind of, of, of uprising or mob or anything like that. So when the high priest comes to him and says, Pilate, we have a guy that is coming in that's going to cause problems. His name's Jesus. Pilate says, take 600 of my men. No problem. There's extra guards there. There's extra Romans there, specifically because Passover, because there's so many people already there. So that's how they got so much muscle to go into the garden to get Jesus. So you can kind of get a feel for what's happening, what this kind of looks like. Now look at verse 44. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. Now this is an infamous scene, isn't it? Churchgoer or not, Christian or not, most people have heard or um, know something about the kiss of Judas, right? The kiss of betrayal. Judas, one of Jesus' disciples, betraying him with the kiss. It's so sinister. It's so evil. Um, I want to talk about that kiss a little bit. Now, in, ancient, in the ancient world, specifically in Israel, there was three different kiss greetings that you would have uh, with, with a friend or someone that you knew or, or an acquaintance. The first one would be between a servant and a master. Okay, so if you were a slave and you wanted to greet your master, you would come up to them and you would kiss their feet. Okay? Sounds gnarly, but that's what they would do. That was the most humble, the most servant um, nature greeting that someone could have. The second would be from someone that would be inferior to someone greater. So let's say just a common person, a middle class greeting, maybe say a rabbi or, or someone of that, of that nature. Uh, they, would kiss, they would kiss their hand, okay? See that even all throughout history, right? They would kiss their hand, that was the greeting. But the most intimate, the most serious of greetings would have been a kiss on the cheek or a kiss on the head. And that meant that you were, a, uh, that meant that you were equal with that person. You were close with that person. The Greek uh, word actually it, it sort of um, infers that he was kissing him with, with great um, passion, that this was a dear friend. Like, like Jesus, Judas wasn't just like 
you know, peck on the cheek and like, yep, that's the guy. No, he was trying to make it look like he was really still a friend and a close person with Jesus. It's interesting to me. Now, not only does he do that, as if that wasn't enough, he kisses him on the cheek and then he says, Rabbi. Okay, let's see, what does that matter? Well, it matters because Rabbi means my great one. I mean, Judas is lying all the way to the end. He's faking it all the way to the end. He's showing false love to Jesus all the way to the very last possible second. Why would Judas even do this? Why would he want, why would he need some kind of a kiss or sign? Why didn't he just show up and say, that's the guy. Here's what I think. Here's my theory. And it's a theory. I think Judas knew the power of Jesus. I think he saw him speak and waves and oceans obeyed him. And I think he was scared. I think that he wanted to make things, things seem like it was status quo right up until the end. He didn't want to give Jesus a second to exercise his power because all Jesus would have had to do, as we'll see, is call down legions of angels and would have destroyed all of these Romans and all of these temple guards, right? So what Judas is doing is he's putting up a front all the way till the end. He doesn't want Jesus, even though Jesus already knows, obviously, he doesn't anything, any, want anything to seem out of the ordinary all the way up until the end until he fulfills what he wants to do to betray Jesus all the way to the end. What we're really seeing here in this kiss and what we're seeing here in him calling him rabbi is the beginning of Jesus' cup of wrath. It's the beginning of Jesus' cup of wrath. Jesus is in the garden. Remember, he prayed and he said, Lord, if there's any other way to not have to drink this cup of wrath that I'm going to have to take on the cross. But it wasn't just the cross, right? It starts here. It starts with the betrayal of one of his best friends, one of those that he loved and poured into and walked with and gave everything to, one that he shared meals with. He was betrayed by one of his closest friends, and that was the beginning, the first sip of the cup of wrath that Jesus would take, and it would not be the last. It would not be the last. Listen to what Spurgeon said. Prince of Preachers, you know, brethren, how sore is that blow which comes from a servant in whom we have put unlimited trust. But Judas was more than this. He was a friend, a trusted friend. The most painful wounds are the ones we receive from those that we thought loved us, aren't they? <laughs> I mean, those people have the ability to hurt us in a way that no one else can. And Judas hurt Jesus so badly. Now, yes, Jesus is God. But Jesus is man as well. We see his emotion, we see his frailty, and he is hurt by this. No doubt he's hurt by this. It's horrible, it's sinister. I don't understand how Judas could do that. But here's the good news too on that. Jesus is our high priest, right? So when you are betrayed, when you are hurt, when someone comes against you, when someone uh, that you love does something that you could not fathom that they would possibly do to you and you would never do to them, Jesus can relate with that, right? Because he's the high priest, the suffering servant, the one that went through everything that you could possibly go through that hurts. And when you pray to him, you can say, I feel that. I know it hurts when you're betrayed. I know it hurts when people love you because I was betrayed by those closest to me, right? So that's good news. Look at verse 46. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Man, I wonder who that could be. 
Like Mark doesn't say, but I mean, do we need? Do we even need? I mean, do, can we? We probably just get a guess, right? I mean, who would be dumb enough to just randomly pull out a sword and start hacking? Um, and as we'll see, uh, just to kind of whoever he felt like in the moment. Well, it's Peter. John eighteen tells us that it's Peter. He's the one that pulls out the sword and decides that he's going to show how awesome and brave he is in the moment and take a swing, take a stab at somebody. Now. This may seem sort of like courageous. I mean, you might, you might think, well, what was so bad about that? I mean, Peter was just, he was just trying to protect Jesus, right? I mean, he was just, well, a couple of things to think about, okay? First of all, when you look at John's account, you realize also that there was more happening than what just Mark alludes to, okay? When, when, when they came, John's account says that Jesus stepped forward and said, who do you seek? And they said, we seek Jesus, one who claims to be the Christ, right? And Jesus says, well, he says, well, he says, I am. He says the tetragrammaton. He says the words that God said in the burning bush when God described who he is, I am. And his words were so powerful that what happened to guards fell backwards. Jesus didn't have to leave a finger. He just opened his word because he's the word. He opened his mouth and the power of his words just proclaiming who he was deistically made every guard fall backwards. Now, that happened. Then Peter is like, Yeah! <laughs> The guards are probably still laying on the ground. <laughs> you're so brave, Peter. I mean, you know, the little girl asks you if you know Jesus or if you're from Galilee with him and you'll, you'll cuss and, and, and deny him three times. But when Jesus knocks a bunch of guys over, you're ready to go back at him. I mean, it's really, it's not brave. It's really nothing brave about it. What Peter's doing is just simply trying to prove himself again. He's just, <laughs> he's trying to prove himself. Here's the funny thing, too. He didn't even attack a Roman guard. He didn't even attack a, uh, a Jewish uh, temple guard. He attacked Malchus, who, by the way, probably wasn't even armed. He was the servant of the high priest, which means he was probably wearing some high priest. He was probably wearing some, some spiritual religious garments, and he was there just sort of being the eyes and ears of the high priest. The guy probably didn't even have a sword, and Peter's like, I'm taking that guy. <laughs> and he runs at him, aiming for his throat, and the fisherman uh, misses his throat and gets his ear. Way to go, Peter. Nice job. Verse 48. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scripture be fulfilled. What Jesus is saying here is, why are you guys coming out here with a thousand men with swords and clubs, armed to the teeth, trying to, trying to, to take me in the middle of the night in the pitch black? I've been teaching in the courts of the temple every day. I've been out here waiting. I mean, why didn't you guys arrest me then? What are you guys up to? We'll look at that more later. And then verse 50, a verse that you could probably just read over, probably just skip over. But again, this next cup of wrath that Jesus has to drink Look at verse 50, and they all, what? They all left him and fled. Every one of Jesus' friends has left and fled. First Judas, right? This kiss of betrayal, mocking him by calling him rabbi. And now every one of his friends that swore that they would go to death with him, right? That they would drink whatever cup he drank. They swore it over and over. They all bail out and run away and they will not go to the cross of Jesus. They refuse. And we learned about that last week, right? The weakness of men. Can't count on us for anything. 
It's the second sip of the cup of wrath that Jesus drinks. Then, this is awesome. Uh, verse 51, we see the first mention of streaking in the ancient, uh, ancient culture, which is awesome. Um, verse 51, a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And <laughs> he seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. So underline that one in your Bible. And uh, <laughs> I will have ten points about that. No. Um, I don't know what to make of that. It's only in Mark. It's really random. It's really funny. Um, I, I read commentary after commentary about it, hoping that I would find something really cool. Uh, but, but the reality is, is, you could allegorize it and symbolize it all day. But the reality is, is some kid was wanting to know what was going on. He was in his pajamas, his bed sheets, <laughs> and he got a little too close, and they thought he was a threat, so they went to try to tackle him. He jukes out, he's naked, and he's running around. That's really the story. I don't know. I'm not going to allegorize it or symbolize it. That's just really what happened. I mean, I leave it at that. A lot of people think that this is John Mark, the writer of this book. Um, they think that, and I, I, I can see it. Um, they think that simply because uh, how would anyone else know about this? Right? The disciples have fled. So how would anyone know about this kid who, who, who juked out of his robe and, and ran around naked? I don't, I don't know. So maybe it's kind of like that Hitchcock moment, right, where he's writing himself into the pages. It could be, possibly. Um, if it is, I think it's cool because he's willing to embarrass himself, right, to show that he fled and, and, and did shout on Jesus too. But whatever it is, it shows us two things. One is that it's another person abandoning Jesus, another person that's not willing to follow Jesus. And the second thing is that the Bible just kind of tells it how it is, right? I mean, if it was a group, like a lot of people say that probably was, if it was just a group of guys saying, hey guys, how do we want to write Mark in like the 6th or 7th century? They wouldn't put this in here. <laughs> Leave that out. That has nothing to do with anything we want to talk about. But it's there because it's historical. I think it happened. And I think that's kind of cool. So that's the text. That's what we're going to look at. Okay. Uh, hopefully it didn't take me too long. Um, the question is, what does all that mean for us? Does all that have anything to do with Heritage Christian Fellowship on a Wednesday night in Cascade Christian Music Suite? Um, I believe that what we're looking at here, the story that we're looking at here, is actually, um, it's a very clear portrait, okay? Picture a portrait, um, something that's going to allow us to see somewhere, take us somewhere, uh, of two kingdoms, okay? Two kingdoms colliding. Uh, the kingdom of men, okay? The kingdom of this world, I should say. The kingdom of this world and the kingdom of Jesus. And what we see here is we see the two colliding in a very interesting way. And I think there's three things that we can pull from this that show the difference between the kingdom of Jesus and the kingdom of this world. Are you excited? <laughs> okay, here we go. Number one. Jesus' kingdom does not advance by the sword. Jesus' kingdom does not advance by the sword. So the Sanhedrin, okay, the council, the ones that set up this whole thing, the ones that wanted Jesus arrested, they use their power, they use their influence, they use their connections, they use their guards, their money, their finance, all of that stuff in order to accomplish something. Um, and in other words, they, they used it to get rid of Jesus, okay? Now, this is how the world operates that we live in, in case you guys didn't know. And you do. Um, the way the world operates is that when you have power and when you have money... And when you're good looking and when you are good at things and when you're strong, you're going to succeed. Okay? And when you don't, you're probably not. Okay? I'm, I'm sorry if I just popped anyone's bubble out there. Uh, if you're bad at something in the world, you're probably not going to make it very far unless you're like Cher or something. You know what I mean? Autocorrect. Wait, is, she's okay. Uh, you know, but the reality of life is the kingdom of this world is that power gets you far. 
Okay? Strength gets you far. Money gets you far. Fame gets you far. Being weak in this world doesn't really get you very far at all, does it? That's the kingdom of this world. That's the kingdom we live in. And that's the kingdom of the world that the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes are living in and operating within. Now, Jesus is coming in and he's encroaching on their what? On their power. He's encroaching on their fame. He's encroaching on people looking up to them, looking to them, thinking that they're awesome. So, according to the kingdom of this world and the rules therein, they're going to use their power to eliminate Jesus because Jesus is encroaching on their power. Okay? That's the way that the kingdom of the world works. So they get you know, close to a thousand men together and with their power, they're going to go out and remove Jesus. But Jesus' kingdom is not built on power, is it? It's not built by power. It doesn't need to be. I mean, he's, he's eternally powerful. But listen to Matthew's account in chapter 26, verse 53. You'll see kind of where I'm going with this. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place. Okay, so Jesus, or Peter just locked off the guy's ear. And in Matthew's account, he says, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. And Jesus says, do you think that I cannot, cannot appeal to the Father? and He will not once send me more than 12 legions of angels. So Jesus is saying, do you understand that I can call down angels that will completely wipe out all of these men? And then 50, 54, but how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Jesus is saying here, he says, I build my kingdom not by the sword, but by what? Going to the cross. This is how the kingdom of Jesus is built. And it's not built in power, and it's not built in pride, and it's not built in ego. It's built in humility. Jesus would be made nothing, that Jesus contained and owned all power in the universe and gave it up to be made nothing, to be made a man on the cross to purchase his people and to build his kingdom. So Jesus' kingdom is not advanced by the sword, it's advanced by humility. And this is how the church was built. Okay? We're not like Islam, where it's built by the sword, and much of Christianity, trust me, thought that it was building by the sword, the crusaders and so on, but never in history has Christianity ever gone anywhere by usurping power or by the sword or by war, but simply by the message of the, of the cross. That's how Christianity advances. That's how Jesus is building his kingdom. And what Jesus is doing here is his main focus is not to take out the legions, not to take out Rome, not to take out the the religious leaders, but rather to go to the cross and in humility to die. And that's how he's going to build his kingdom. So Jesus' ultimate enemy is not the chief priest. It's not the Sanhedrin. It's not Judas. Jesus' chief enemy is not Rome. It's not Pontius Pilate. It's death. That's his chief enemy. And that's who he's going to the cross to conquer in weakness. So Jesus builds his kingdom not by the sword, but by the cross. So what that means for us is, greatness is not found in earthly possessions, is it? The kingdom of God is not built on stuff. It's not built on power. That's good news for for, for those of us that don't have any. (laughs) That's good news for those of us that realize our weakness. That Jesus is not interested in only the powerful people. He's interested in the meek and the humble and the lowly. And that is the foundation upon what Jesus' kingdom is built I love that. That implies for us that Jesus loves not only the powerful, but the weak. And so we are too, okay? So that's the first aspect that we see here of Jesus' kingdom in comparison to the kingdom of this world. Number two, Jesus' kingdom works in light. 
not in darkness. Jesus' kingdom works in light, not in darkness. Now, notice they waited until midnight to arrest him. Why? Why did they do that? They did that because they don't want anyone to know. (laughs) They're scared of an uprising. They're scared of people coming in and interfering or causing a problem. So they wait till the middle of the night where it's pitch black in a secluded place. And they hide. And this group of men, they come out and they, they take Jesus and they arrest Jesus in the middle of the night. Why? Because it's dark. Let's look at, look at verse 48. Jesus said to them, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? When day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, they operate in the kingdom of this world, which is a kingdom of darkness. Jesus operates in the kingdom, in his kingdom, which is a kingdom of light. The kingdom of darkness is all about deception, about hiding, about making things uh, fake and, and being who you want to be by usurping your power. The kingdom of Jesus is about truth. It's about light. So Jesus says, I've been out in the daytime preaching the truth and revealing truth, and you guys are here in the dark trying to hide who you are. Now, why did they want to, why did they want to eliminate Jesus? Not only because he was encroaching on their power, but they also wanted to eliminate Jesus because he was calling them out on who they really were. Jesus was the light shining into the wickedness of the religious leaders and revealing that they were a whitewashed tomb, as he said, a cup that had been washed on the outside but was still dirty on the inside. Jesus' truth, the gospel itself, was revealing the wickedness and the fallenness of of these leaders, and so they wanted dead. And they're going to do it through the kingdom of this world, which is darkness at night, right? Following where I'm going with this? Jesus is the light of the world. Now, in Acts... It says that uh, at one point in Acts when um, we see some of the Jews calling out the Christians saying that they are turning the world upside down. You guys remember that? In the book of Acts, it's such an interesting verse. These Christians are turning the world upside down. They saw these Christians as coming into their culture and flipping everything upside down and making everything opposite and backwards. But the reality of that is, is that Christianity isn't turning everything upside down, is it? Everything already is upside down. Everything is completely the opposite of the way that it was supposed to be. We live in a fallen world that from Adam has changed, has been cursed, and now everything is jacked up. Everything is screwed up. Everything is upside down. And what Jesus did when he came into the earth was to begin to flip things right side up the way that they were always intended to be. Without divorce, without abortion, without murder, without lust, without abuse and anger and hurt and all of these things that are backwards, not the way it was intended to be. And so Jesus comes in in his kingdom of light and begins to reveal the reality of the way things are supposed to be. And guess what? The Sadducees hate it. The Pharisees hate it because they live in the kingdom of darkness. They want it hidden. They want it covered. And they want Jesus dead because he's showing people who they really are. Even though Jesus' teaching seems backwards, it's actually the world that is backwards. We have to realize that. And that's what I love about the gospel is it doesn't only reveal, it doesn't only reveal the issues, but it deals with them. Jesus didn't only reveal that the world is backwards, but he created a way for it to be flipped upside down, the way it's supposed to be, right? He showed us as Christians, now we have the eyes to see, the scope to see why there are, why the world is the way the world is. Why people are killing each other, why people can't stick it out in their marriages, why people are hating each other. We get to see why that is, and then we get to see how Jesus fixed it. He fixed it now, and he's fixing it forever and eternity, right? That's good news. 
So what this scene here further illustrates is what I just said is that man's deep-rooted intention is to walk in darkness. It's why they arrested him at night. And Jesus' intention in the kingdom of Jesus is all about light and truth and revealing things for the way that they are. Third point, I'll let you guys go. Jesus' kingdom is built by God's sovereignty, not man's ambition. And this is important, so if you're getting sleepy, listen. Okay? Jesus' kingdom is built by God's sovereignty and not man's ambition. One more thing about Peter, okay? When he pulled out his sword, what was he doing there? What was going through his head? Here's what I think was going through his head. A few hours earlier, Jesus had sat down with his disciples in the upper room, and Jesus had told Peter something. Peter, you are, or it was in the upper room, I'm sorry, in the garden. Uh, He told him, you are going to betray me three times. Now that pet Peter's ego backwards. <laughs> you know what I mean? He's like, what are you talking about, Lord? I'm not going to deny you. I can do this. I can. I have the strength. I'm going to follow you all the way, right? So a few hours later, here come the Roman guards. Jesus just knocked him over. And when he pulls out his sword, I guarantee Peter is thinking, this is my chance to prove that I can do it. This is my chance to prove that my ambition, that my strength will not fail, that Jesus, I'm going to be the disciple, that I'm going to follow you all the way. He thinks this is his chance to take, the pun is intended, one more stab at it, right? Come on, that was good. Come on, one more stab. I thought that was awesome. He's trying to prove himself here. He's trying to show that he can do it, that he's the man, that he has the ambition, he has what it takes. My wife and I watched this show called Restaurant Impossible. You ever watch that? Oh, you guys ever watch that show? Seriously? Food Network, watch it, it's cool. Uh, these restaurants that are just dying, I mean, they're like in the red, beyond in the red, they're horrible restaurants. Um, they, they get on the show, and then this big buff British guy comes in, he's just like the man, you know? He comes in and he just like, for two days, he just restores the restaurant, he like, he, but his main thing that he tries to do is he tries to get the owner to realize that the problem is them. <laughs> and it's really funny because we hate, we hate, to know or think about the fact that we're the problem, you know? I mean, in our marriages, it's always our wife, right? In our friendships, it's always them, right? But usually, it's us, and we hate for anyone to point out that it's us. We hate that. So this guy comes into these restaurants, and he spends almost most of his time through arguments and conversations with the owners, just trying to make them realize that they're the problem. But the funny thing is, is their main argument is always, but I work so hard, and they do. These restaurant owners are working 50, 60, 70, 80 hours a week, right? But their business is failing. How does that work? So this guy comes in and he says, yeah, the problem isn't that you're not working too hard. The problem is that you're working wrong. The problem isn't your ambition. The problem isn't that you're not committed. The problem is you're just doing the wrong place. You're doing the wrong things. And it's very insightful for me to think about it's very insightful to think about. So Peter's problem isn't his ambition, right? I mean, he's got it, dude. He's courageous. He's ready to grab that sword and chase those guys laying on the ground. I mean, he's the guy, you know? He's got the ambition. He's got the strength. His problem isn't that. His problem is his view of God's power and sovereignty. Okay, let me bring this a little closer to home here. You guys are working your tails off. I'm working my tail off to try to manage my life. I want to raise my daughter right. I want a healthy and and flourishing marriage. I want to walk with God that is deep and rooted, and I want to be in the Word. I want to take care of my body and be healthy. Um, I want to do good at my job. I mean, the list goes on. Our stresses are many, okay? We all have a lot of things that we're struggling with. Teenage kids that won't listen to us, maybe. 
marriages that are struggling, friends that are driving us crazy, things that are burdensome. And the issue isn't so much that we're not working hard enough. The reason that we're stressing out, the reason that we're unhealthy because we're so stressed out, isn't so much because we're not working hard enough because we need to try harder or we need to give more. The issue is usually that we don't understand God's sovereignty. Now listen, we need, during the day, I mean, I'm going to give everything that I can to be the best Sam that I can. I'm going to get, do everything that I can to raise my daughter right and to be a good pastor here and to, to work. Um, I don't know why that was funny. I'm sure I'll find out tomorrow. Uh, As my brother. He tells me all the stupid things I say after I love um, You know, I'm going to do everything I can in this moment to be the best that I can. But when my head hits the pillow, guys, what is, how big is our view of God's sovereignty? How big is it? I mean, I get that our life has a lot of things that are really stressful. My life has a lot of things that are really stressful. But the size of the sovereignty of God in our mind will, be, will determine how much peace and joy you have through those things in your life. There's things that we can't change. Your son may move out, your daughter may move out and not want to talk to you and reject you and reject Jesus no matter what you've done, no matter how much you've shown them the way. People may hate you no matter how nice you are to them. But when your head hits that pillow, how much do you understand and realize the sovereignty of God in your life? That he is in control and that he knows what he's doing. Peter is just clumsily and ambitiously lopping people's ears off in his own stupid ambition, trying to do what he can't do. Trying to stop something that has been foreordained and predestined for thousands of years. Jesus is like, no, I want to go to the cross, Peter. Cut it out. Quit lobbing people's ears off. I'm trying to go to the cross, and you're over here ambitiously cutting people's ears off. Knock it off and trust me. Trust my sovereignty. Now, I'm not saying we should try as hard as we're trying. We should try until we pass out in our lives to do the best that we possibly can. But at the end of the night, we have to understand God's sovereignty. Now, I wasn't going to share this. I don't even know if I should, um, but I, I think it's fitting. Um, I, I got to preach down in Wairika a few weeks ago. And um, I got to experience this firsthand. Uh, I was preaching, I was 10 minutes into my sermon, and uh, a man, a gentleman, walked in um, and walked right up to the pulpit. And I thought he was going to sit down, he didn't sit down. Uh, he walked up to the pulpit and he said, um, he said, Excuse me, can I interrupt? And I said, uh, No. <laughs> I don't think so, man. I, was try- I tried to be really gracious, you know. Um, uh, you know, we'll talk afterwards. I really want to talk to you, but I'm, I'm trying to tell these guys about Jesus. and and uh, he said, okay, and he turned around, and the deacons or some of the elders went out and tried to talk to him, wasn't interested in talking to them, and um, he, he left, whatever. I, I went home, I tried to regain my composure, you know, with distractions, or whatever, and just finished preaching the sermon, I went home. And the next morning, uh, my wife and I are at a doctor's appointment for my daughter, and I get a phone call from an elder at that church, and he said, um, hey, I just want to give you a, a little bit of information about that guy that came in yesterday. Um, he shot himself in the head last night. And... I didn't know what to do <laughs> in my head. I was just like, Lord, like, why? I mean, why? I mean, I can't believe that. And, and, and I, my instant reaction was guilt, you know? Like, I should have talked to the guy and um, should have done something. Uh, I came to find out a little more information that his son had committed suicide three months earlier, and I think he was just trying to deal with that, cope with that. Um, just brutal. And, and I say that to say, first of all, I mean, it was amazing because it made me realize how important moments are, you know? Um, it made me realize how important moments are that, that the people, you never know. You never know when people are at a point where they need Jesus so bad. And it could be their last hope, their last chance. Now, I, don't, I, I realized when it came to a realization that there was nothing I could have done in that moment. I didn't know 
you know? Um, I didn't know that the guy was going to do that, and I was in the middle of a sermon, and he didn't want to stick around and talk to me, but um, I say all that to say this. That put to the test my understanding of the sovereignty of my God. Because what I could have done is I could have been like Peter and said, now i got to go prove myself. Because <laughs> I blew it here, I should have done this, I should have done that, and I'm so weak, and I'm such a dork, and um, now I need to stress out every night and feel guilt and get an ulcer. And, um, or I can say, Lord, you numbered that man's days. And, and you know more than I do. And you're stronger than I am. And you are sovereign. Now, that doesn't mean that next time I, I see someone that I don't know and, and they want to talk to me that I'm not going to do everything I possibly can to tell them about Jesus. Trust me, I will. But when I put my head down on the pillow at night, what is my view of God's sovereignty? Peter needed to understand this. Jesus has got it, dude. Sheath your sword. He's got it. He knows what he's doing. He doesn't need you to ambitiously lock people's ears off. He needs you to trust him because he's bigger than your issues. He's bigger than your struggles. He's bigger than your guilt. He's bigger than your shame. He's bigger than your pain, okay? That's, I believe, what the prophetic word was tonight for you guys, that we would trust and understand the sovereignty of our God in all things, what seemed like the worst possible thing that could have possibly happened, Jesus going to the cross, ended up being the greatest possible thing that could have ever happened for all of mankind. Peter's like, how could this happen? How could Jesus go to the cross and be murdered? And God the Father's in heaven saying, if you only knew what he's doing right now, he's purchasing you eternally from your sin and damnation. I mean, we gotta trust him. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing with your son right now. He knows what he's doing with your daughter right now. He knows what he's doing with your marriage, with your friendships. He's sovereign over those things. So do everything you can to fix them, but realize that at the end of the day, he is God, okay? And he loves you guys, and he loves me, and he knows what's best. Amen? Okay. Let's all stand and then pray together. Father, tonight I just simply thank you for your sovereignty, God. I don't even understand the fullness of what that means. Lord, I, I can stand up here and pretend like I understand your sovereignty, but in the reality, God, all I know is that you're a whole lot bigger than I am. And I'm so glad, because if I was God, I would just really screw things up. So tonight, Lord, I pray for this, this little family here, the Wednesday night crew at Heritage, Lord, I just pray that we would go home tonight being reminded that you are in control of every second of our lives. And even though it feels crazy and it feels like we don't know what's going on sometimes, that we wouldn't be like Peter and start waving a sword, God, but that we would trust you to the very end. Jesus, you are greater than everything. Thank you for going to the cross for us. Thank you for drinking the cup of wrath that we could not. Thank you for experiencing more hell and moments on the cross than we ever would have in all eternity, God. Thank you for drinking that for us. Thank you for giving us life and purity and righteousness. Thank you for giving us your perfect life, for purchasing our, the title deed to our heart. Lord, thank you for giving us the gifts, the spiritual gifts that we now walk in and the Holy Spirit that lives within us, the hope of heaven. Thank you for giving us each other, this body, this family, that we can encourage each other and be real and open up about things, be shaped by one another. So Lord, go with us. Just pray for more of your spirit. Lord, in this holiday season where so many are depressed, pray that you would touch them and help them, that people would not continue to take their lives thinking that's the answer. Use us, Lord, strategically place us in people's lives, God, that are depressed and hurting, that have no hope. 
Help us to show them the light, the truth, the way things are supposed to be, the upside kingdom, that the way things were intended to be, Lord. I just pray that um, in Jesus' mighty and powerful name. Amen. God bless you guys. Thank you for coming out.